Hey, podcaster, this episode of the Faith Church Podcast has a message from Jim McComas. Jim came and was our guest speaker at a special event titled Break the Chains. And Break the Chains was an incredible day. Uh, Jim's son passed away from a heroin overdose, and we let the community know that we were going to be hearing from him as he shared the story of his son, Matt, and also gave a message of hope and comfort to addicts and the families of addicts and our community responded in a great way we had many community leaders here we had 14 news here it was a special day and i'm excited to share jim's sermon with you god is closest to the broken Uh, jim also sang a song for us that day that he had written based off of this message, and you can find that on our church website at faithinchandler.com slash break the chains. And so if you'd like to hear that song, see the message in video, or watch the celebration of life service for Matthew McComas that Jim mentions in his message, you can find all of that there on our church website. Please enjoy this message from Jim McComas at the special Break the Chains event. Please don't answer this out loud. Don't answer it to yourself before you really think about what I'm, what I'm asking. But everybody here has something in common. Everybody here is somebody's child. And I could create a lot of uh, real strong discussion and debate in this room if I were to ask you right now if you felt that your parents had a favorite child. See there, I can see uh, people are looking around and nudging. Uh, some of you would say, yeah, and I was it. Some of you would say, well, my older sister or my younger brother, you know. And, of course, we know that uh, the first child always had it the roughest because the first child, you know, when that first baby's born, the pacifier goes on the floor. We, didn't, we boil some water, disinfect it, go through all this rigmarole. By the time the second or third baby comes around, you know, it drops on the floor. Whoop, five-second rule. <laughs> Put it back in. I mean, that's uh, that's just the reality of it. But, you know, then, then we think about that student at school that maybe slips an apple on the teacher's desk or buys some elaborate Christmas gift. We call them a teacher's, the teacher's pet. My question this morning is, does God play favorites? Is there... Some that God pays particular attention to or is closest to from time to time. And now, now look, I understand that I'm in a free will Baptist church this morning. I work for the free will Baptist denomination. I understand that in relation to salvation, we believe that the answer to that question is an emphatic no. We believe that the ground at Calvary is level, that there are no good sinners and bad sinners. We're all just sinners and we all need a Savior and that God loves everybody equally. I understand that. Matter of fact, somebody said if you are lost, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, the best thing you can do is walk into the Old Testament, go down to about the book of Isaiah 53 and verse 6 and read there. Go in at the gate of Isaiah 53, 6, it's, it begins with a three-letter word, A-L-L, all. I've looked that word up in the original language. Do you know what it means? All. It means everybody. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We get that, don't we? We're all sinners. We've all messed up. And then Isaiah 53, 6 goes on to say, and the Lord had laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. It begins and ends with the same three-letter word, all we are sinners, and God laid on Jesus the sin of us all. 
So if you're not right with God, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, all you've got to do is walk up to Isaiah 53, 6, go in at the first doll, come out at the last doll, and you'll be saved and on your way to heaven, glory bound with a hammer down. Now, I know you all are a new crowd. You don't know what that means. Well, I started doing this a few years ago. I didn't even realize I was doing it when I was pastoring over in Ohio. When I do that, that means I've made a particularly good point that you need to amen. If you do not amen when I do that, I will come down, sit down, and amen myself. If I have to do that six or eight times, look at me, I'm out of shape. This sermon will take till about three o'clock this afternoon. Y'all pick up fast in Chandler, Indiana. That's good. So I understand in relation to salvation, God loves everybody equally. But my question remains, are there certain times and certain moments where God is near to some than he is to others? And I would declare to you that the answer to that question is yes. And I'm going to attempt to prove that to you from Scripture because I can tell by the look on some of y'all's face you don't believe it. But I'm basically going to be the prosecuting attorney. You're going to be the jury. And I'm going to lay out my case here in the next few minutes. Now, the obvious second question would be, if God does play favorites, then who is it? And if, if I were in the God business, if I were trying to figure out on God's end, who would be God's favorite? I, I'd have to think and say, I bet it's somebody real religious. I mean, somebody maybe like, maybe it's a you know, really famous preacher. Maybe somebody like Billy Graham that's seen thousands of people come to Christ. Or maybe it's somebody like the evangelist. He's a TV evangelist. He's got wavy hair and his wife sits there on the His name's Jack Van Empey. They call Jack Van Empey the walking Bible. Do you know why they call him the walking Bible? Because they tell me that Jack Van Empey has memorized 14,000 verses of Scripture, including virtually the entire New Testament. Shazam. Did you hear what I said? I didn't say he read that much. He memorized 14,000 verses of Scripture, including virtually the entire New Testament. It's got to be somebody like Jack Van Empey. Or maybe it's somebody like Jim Hedgelin. Now, I know you don't know that name, but Jim Hedgelin, on April 1st, 1934, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, as a seven-year-old boy, walked in to the Johnstown United Methodist Church as a seven-year-old boy and went to Sunday school. And some of y'all are saying, big deal. We've all went to Sunday school. No big deal. Yeah, but Jim Hedgelin went back the next Sunday and the next Sunday and every Sunday that year. <coughs> and when he died, you can Google Jim Hedgelin, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, when you get home. You know, you can Google anything. It's amazing. <coughs> See, if you don't believe it, Jim Hedgelin, when he died, <coughs> had a perfect attendance record of 80 years. <coughs> 80 years Perfect attendance in Sunday school. Wow. Now you think you think about bad weather. You think about now that now I now I did read an article recently when I was checking up my facts. They had to bring the Sunday school class to the hospital room twice and have Sunday school with him <coughs> after he'd had surgery, but never missed in eighty years. I say, <coughs> boy, it's got to be somebody like Jim Hedlin. But if you were to answer any of those, Billy Graham, Jim Hedlin. Anybody in that realm, you would be incorrect. None of the above. The answer is before us in the one verse of Scripture I am going to read today, and that is Psalm 34 and verse 18. Psalm 34 and verse 18. 
Here's what it says. The Lord is nigh. That means he is near. He is closest. There it is. Who is it? The Lord is near. To who? To those who are of a broken heart. And save as such be as of a contrite spirit. That word contrite means bruised or broken or crushed. The Lord is near. He is nigh. He is closest to the brokenhearted. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, <clears throat> hear what I'm about to say, the statement I'm about to make. The God that I serve is attracted to brokenness. And so that means, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if you are here this morning and you are broken in your life for any reason, you are God's favorite. God does play favorites, and you are it. And I can tell <clears throat> some of you, not, that's not thrilling you yet. I mean, that ought to thrill all of us. But if you're not getting it. You're just not believing it. It's not maybe a message you're used to getting in, in, in church. But, but listen, and the thing I love about Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is nigh to those who have a broken heart. There's no stipulations in that verse as to how you got broken. You know there are broken people all over this building. Somebody said if you preach to broken hearts, you'll never lack for an audience. Broken people in every pew. We got that way in different, different ways. There are some here this morning that are broken because of sickness. You know, if you are sick physically, physical, physically sick in body for long enough, it'll affect not just your physical body, it'll affect you mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Physical sickness. And we, and we know those in the, in the average church, we know the folks who are sick in body. We uh, put them on the prayer list. We maybe take them a meal, visit them if they're in the hospital. We, we know we can identify them pretty well. There are some here that are broken because of sorrow. You've went through a loss in your life. Some here know what it's like to lose the dearest on earth to them, their, their spouse maybe of many years. Some that are here know what it's like, and they are in every one of our churches, those that have lost a child through various number of circumstances. After the morning, the first service this morning, I stood back there. A line of people. Sad stories. In every church service, they said. And, and we don't know how to deal with them. We don't know what to say. So we either don't say anything or sometimes we say the wrong thing. I have a friend, pastor friend in Alabama whose son died on Christmas Eve in a car wreck at 15 years old, 30 years ago. And somebody came to the, came to the viewing and said, well, you know, you've got another son. Yeah. Wrong thing to say. Um, they sit. And somebody said, uh, you know, if you lose your, if you lose your wife, you're a widower. They call you a widower. If you lose your, Husband, you're a widow. If you lose your parents, you're an orphan, but there isn't any word for somebody that's lost a child because the pain is so enormous. And we know those folks in most of our churches. We know when somebody passed away, we go to the, to the, to the viewing or maybe, maybe send flowers, maybe send a meal again. and We try to comfort the best we can, and then life goes on for us. But for that one that's lost somebody near and dear to them, life is never 
the same. I used to describe grief as like getting hit in the gut with a sack of bricks. I mean, literally a panic attack, take your breath away kind of a feeling. As time goes on, that feeling comes less and less, but it never goes away, ever. If you love somebody. But some are broken because of sorrow. And then some here, this, this group's not as easy to spot, but they're in every church. Some today are broken because of circumstances. I'm talking about you woke up one day, you look back in your life and say, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how I thought my life was going to go. Anybody here ever had a bad day? Anybody here ever felt like you were having a bad week? Anybody ever got so depressed you thought you were having a bad life? I mean, all you needed was a hound dog singing gloom, despair, and agony on me. By the way, I don't know if you people up in Indiana know that's a hee-haw reference. Anybody here know what a hee-haw is? That's good, fine TV watching. Circumstances. I'm talking about you married that guy. He was Mr. America. Boy, he had a six-pack when you married him. And now you look over and his dung went to a keg. I mean, it's just all collapsed. That lady was a beauty queen when you married her. And now you look over in the morning and she rolls over and looks like the Korean War was fought in her hair. It's going every which way. I'm talking about life has a way of changing things. I'm talking about circumstances. Now we don't know that group as well. We can't identify them when we come to church because when we come to church sometimes, I, I used to tell our folks, I pastored in Ohio for 21 years, born and raised in Ohio before moving to, to take the position with, in Nashville. But I used to tell our folks all the time, I said, I believe there's more lying goes on in church than anywhere else. Because you cried yourself to sleep on Saturday night. You don't know how you're going to make it. you got marital problems, problems with a wayward child or grandchild, financial problems, emotional problems. And then you get up, put your clothes on, go to church and walk in the building and somebody says, how you doing, brother, sister? And we say, doing fine, praise the Lord. Why do we do that? I'll tell you why we do that. Because we want folks to think we change our clothes in a phone booth and we've got a big red cape on underneath our clothes and we're super Christian. But the reality is trouble comes to everybody's house. Some are broken because of circumstances. And then there's another group. Some are broken today just because of sin. You just made some bad choices. Went down a bad path. Made some mistakes we'll regret for the rest of our life. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll leave you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. But Psalm 34, 18 does not break that down. It just says he is closest to those who are broken. And, and get this now. You need to hear this. If you are here and you are broken for whatever reason, the devil would have you believe that you are unusable and unlovable. If you're battling an addiction, you don't even want to come to church because you think everybody judges you and everybody knows what... And, and with addiction comes lying and cheating and stealing and deception. Listen, you don't need somebody to tell you what you are. You know it more than anybody else in the depths of your soul. And the devil would have you say... Listen, they wouldn't even let you in that building if they knew everything about you. I like what my buddy down the road in Kendallville, Indiana, Brother Billy Fields said, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want to come hear me preach. But if I knew everything about you, I wouldn't care if you came or not. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, we all have things we're not proud of. Amen? Amen. 
Let me look here. This is my Buckeye halo detector. Let me see. Don't see a halo. No angels in the crowd. We've all got things that we're not proud of. And the devil makes us feel unusable and unlovable. But I want you to know that the very things that make you feel that God is a million miles away from you is exactly what makes him closest to you. You are God's favorite. And I can tell some of you still ain't getting it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I present biblical case number one. There's a backslidden preacher on the verge of a nervous breakdown. His name is Moses. He's leading about two million free will Baptists through the wilderness. And he can't take it anymore. Because he goes up on Mount Sinai to get the law. Do you remember that? He's gone a matter of a couple of days. And when he comes back down, he listens. He says, I hear a rock band down there. And they've all done left the church and are down at the crystal pistol, boozing and cruising around, and they're worshiping a different God. I didn't say they just left church. They're worshiping a different God in a couple of days. And he says, God, these people are driving me crazy. You've got to show me something, God. I need some help here. I'm about to lose it. And God said, Moses, now I can't show you myself. I can't come down face to face because nobody's ever seen me in all of my glory and live. But Moses, I do have a place. There is a place. Aren't you glad God has a place for us when we're in trouble? He says, I'll take you up in my hand, the hollow of my hand, and I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'm going to cover you there, and I'm going to pass by. I reckon the person on this earth ever in all of history that's got closest to the glory of God on this earth was an old backslidden preacher on the verge of a nervous breakdown named Moses. Why would God show him his glory? I'll tell you why. Because God plays favorites. He is closest to the broken. There's probably nobody in history that messed up any bigger and badder and worse than the apostle Peter. You remember the night before Jesus died? <clears throat> Up in the upper room? He puts his arm around the Lord. Jesus, I want you to know if all these other losers leave you, I'm going to stick right with you. It's you and me, buddy. And in a matter of hours, he is at a fire, cursing and denying three times that he even knew who Jesus was. There in the garden, when Jesus needs somebody the most, he's lying there asleep. Utter, complete failure. Three days after he dies, Jesus is risen from the grave and he sends an angel with a message for the disciples that he's alive, that he's going before the disciples to Galilee. You remember the message? You go and tell the disciples and there's one he mentioned by name. One of them. You want to guess who it was? Go and tell the disciples and you make sure to tell Peter, I'm alive. Why would he single Peter out? Because he knew, God knew exactly how low Peter felt and what a failure he felt. And he felt he wouldn't be even worthy to be with the rest of them. And he said, I want you to be sure to tell him to come too. You know why he did that? Because God plays favorites. He's closest to the broken. I think some of you may be getting it. Let me give you one more. We don't know her name. Her, we, we know her as a woman taken in adultery. Remember the religious muckety-mucks? They came and caught her in the act of adultery and threw her at Jesus' feet. You ever think about that? You all think when you come to church. You ever think about that? They threw the woman, caught in the, they caught her in the act of adultery. What did they do? Where did, where did the man go? I have my ideas. I'll talk to you after church about that. I, 
I'm not so sure that he wasn't there in that religious muckety-muck crowd. That was free. Just, just think about that on the way home. But anyway, they throw it at Jesus' feet. The law says, Jesus, she ought to be stoned, killed. What do you say? They didn't care about her. They didn't care about what she did. They were just looking to try to trap Jesus, trick Jesus. Jesus didn't say anything. He turned around and started writing in the sand. Now, after I've been in heaven about a million years, I want to go and I want to find out what Jesus wrote on the ground. I want to know. I have my ideas on that. Some people think he wrote a scripture verse. Some people think he started writing the secret sins of those religious muckety-mucks back there. All I know is the longer he wrote, the faster they left. Shoo, shoo, shoo. They're going out this door and that door. And by the time Jesus gets up and turns around, they're all gone. And that woman is now left with the only person that had the right to judge her. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Any of them left? She said, none, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Why? The righteous judge of the earth, the perfect and holy one who had the right to judge her. Why didn't he? Why did he show her love and compassion? I'll tell you why. Because God plays favorites. He is closest to the broken. Somebody needs to hear this today. I'm going to get specific now. If you are here and you are an addict, you are battling an addiction, I am telling you on the authority of the Word of God, you are God's favorite. That's probably not the message you expected to hear when you came to church, but I'm telling you. And how God brought me to be delivering this message around our denomination came through the story that our family experienced. I want you, and I have some pictures here. I don't know if we've got them uh, there, but um, we, we lived, like I said, we, we were born and raised rural northeast Ohio. A few hours from here, my wife and I and our two boys, Matt and Aaron, this is, this is Matt. This is obviously a few years ago. You can tell that from me, but... Um, I was the, the assistant coach of the Norway Bobcat, the, our little league team there in town. And this is my favorite picture of Matt and I. It's been my profile picture now for the last year uh, because you could see the joy. I mean, he's very, very happy there. Uh, that's in our front yard after the game that night. Uh, late in that game, we played the best team in our area and uh, Matt came up with the bases loaded. And listen, you talk about a preacher praying. I'm standing there coaching third base, and I'm saying, Lord, if I have ever done anything right, I cash in all of my good coupons. Please, Lord, just don't let him strike out. Let him hit it, hit by a pitch, great. Walk, great. Pass ball, wonderful. Just don't let him strike out, please. And he was not a power hitter. He was our number five hitter at that time, I think, and that's behind the 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 the, uh, the cleanup hitter, uh, but man, he socked the ball. Longest our coach said it was the longest ball he'd ever been, seen hit in little league. And of course, here I'm at third, and my arms running. I mean, I'm getting tired. I'm running them in one, two, three, and then he comes around third, and uh, it's a grand slam. So that's in our yard. And somebody said, "Boy, how about, how about did you win the game?" Oh, I said we lost horribly, <laughs> but it, it didn't matter. Um, 
typical family. There's no horror stories. There's no hidden secrets here. Uh, well, you were a preacher. You were probably gone. No, I was at everything. I mean everything. Listen, we, we live in sadness, but we do not live in regret. There are no regrets. Vacations. And can I, can I just say this? You that have small children now, here's my greatest advice. Uh, we, I, I don't have, my house is not anywhere near paid for because we spend a lot of money on a lot of things. Probably people might think, uh, spend the money. I'll go to Myrtle Beach next week and speak at a couple's treat. And Myrtle Beach is full of memories for our family. But they're good memories. The fireworks store. $100 worth of fireworks? Yeah, I bought them. And now, memories are all I have. Spend the money. Go on vacation. Buy the fireworks. Don't sweat the small stuff. Toothpaste lid off. Toilet seats up. Who cares? Matters little in the long term. That's a great, right there is some of the greatest advice you'll ever get if you've got small children. Spend it, go, stop, take the time. Somewhere along the line, early in high school, something happened. I didn't know what happened at the time. Somebody offered him a beer. And you say, a beer, no big deal. And I'm sure that's what he thought. But see, here's the thing you understand. We're talking about gateways, gateways to to other things. Here's why you shouldn't even try anything. You should just say no. And here's, here's part of my message. is because there are other things at play you have no idea. As a young man, our son had no idea about genetics. He had nothing. He didn't know anything about family tree and addictions that run in families. Now, it doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that it's just absolutely imperative that you're going to be an addict, but it does mean you are susceptible. It doesn't mean it's inevitable. But there are genetics at play. There is no question. Both up both sides of our family tree, and there's dopamine levels. There's all kinds of physiological, psychological things. Uh, it's just a beer. But that was a gateway into pot. And again, at this point, we don't know any of that. And then, then uh, it's pills. And I can remember, I, at this point, we knew that he had a problem and there's some things and some warning signs and, you know, tough love and all, you know, some of you know all about what I'm talking about. But I remember when he was, when we knew that he had the pill addiction, we were talking one day about somebody that was shooting up, was on heroin. My son made a statement. He said, yeah, when you, when you get on the needle, it's all over. See, and what I realized was in his mind, he was in better shape than somebody that was shooting up because he was just, you know, crushing pills and ordering them and all See how good the devil is at getting you to think that you've got control. See, he thought, I, I'm in, I can handle this. It's okay because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a junkie. I'm not, I'm not shooting up. But see, here's what the devil doesn't tell you. He'll get you to believe that you are in control until one day before you even realize that what you thought you had control of will someday have control of you. He hated needles, but there came a day, about 17, 18, he let somebody shoot him up. And now, 
All the, like all the other stuff, that was just affairs. Now, now this is, that's the girlfriend. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the mistress. And now we are in a fight for life and death. You do realize that when you take drugs now, these days, you are playing Russian roulette. You have no idea what you're getting. You have no idea coming from China, cut with fentanyl, car fentanyl. Do you know what those words mean? Do you know, understand that car fentanyl, you, a thousand times more powerful than morphine, you do understand rhinoceros tranquilizer, somebody delivers car fentanyl, they put a mask on because one granule, you've heard these stories of policemen actually uh, over, you know, Russian roulette. So I'm, I'm fast-forwarding through all of this. And many of you, sadly, are very familiar with this story. And the trouble and the tears and the pain. And, and, and listen, young person, here's why you do not want to get started with this stuff. Because you don't want your parents. The, one of the happiest days of my life was when I got my son arrested. One of the greatest nights of sleep I got was when I knew my son was in jail. Is that every parent's joy and dream for their child is that they go to jail? But I knew that night that I knew where he was at. They did have some deed. See how good the devil is to get us to the point where as a family we're rejoicing that we got our son arrested. But the last time, the last year, and, and here's, the, here's the other thing you need to realize. Understand this. At seven years old, as part of my son's life and, and being raised in church, at seven years old on a school bus coming home from, 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 uh, from school, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior in church all of his life. And you say, well, I don't know about that. Here, here's the thing. And, and in jail and in rehab, and, and, and folks came at the funeral telling of him leading Bible studies and joining in, in jail, praying. And they could remember distinctly his prayers out loud, crying out to God to deliver. See, and the reason the church struggles with understanding that is because we rate sin. There's the really bad stuff that you do, and then there's the stuff that I do, and that's okay. We quantify sin on different levels. I mean, look up here. I battle an addiction. It's not with a pill. It's not with a needle. I battle with a fork and a spoon. But we don't, that one's okay. We laugh at that one. Matter of fact, we go to church, have a big old homecoming chicken dinner and dumplings on the ground and participate in that sin at church. Am I right or wrong? You know I'm right. Well, and I guarantee you, if I die tomorrow of a heart attack with my greasy hand and a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. Nobody's going to come around my casket and say, well, you think he made it? You know, he battled that. See, why? Why would nobody say? Because we rate sin. Remember in, in rehab, I, we, we sat in the gazebo. I remember where we were at. And I remember not one day I was afraid to ask the question because I was afraid of the answer. And I said, you know, you, you made the commitment and you're you're a Christian. Do you, did you mean that commitment? Or, or have you walked away? Or is there, are you mad because of the way you're raised and you're just, uh, you've, you've turned against God? He said, no, Dad. No, he said, I did believe and I do believe. He said, Dad, sometimes when the devil can't get at the man of God, 
He'll go after his family. And I really, it didn't matter to me at that moment if that was what was happening in my son's life. I was just thankful to hear him consider me as a man of God that he did love and respect me. See, when somebody you love is in this, you take it personally and it hurts and you think, what have I done wrong? And to the families that are here that are suffering through this, you're not bad people, you're not bad parents, you're not bad brothers or sisters, you're doing the best you can with a bad situation. If you put the last picture up, that was last year, Christmas. Last day we were together as a family. We had him back. He was doing good. Nine months. February 25th. It'll be, soon be a year. I'm in California on a Saturday night. He calls me. We were on the phone for over a half hour. Nothing in that conversation led me to believe he was struggling again, but he was. If I'd have known it, I promise you. I, I mean, I have to live with that the rest of my life. If I'd have known, if I'd have thought, I'd have been, I got in my car, stayed on the phone, and I'd still be driving. But in the early hours of Saturday, first time in nine months was the last time. You mess up, some sins have deadly consequences. One mess up. Heroin laced with carpet. Had no chance. When I remember, I have some vivid snapshots and memories. Young person, potential addict, please listen. Because the devil will say, you can handle it, it's okay, it's just one pill, it's just something to calm your nerves, it'll be a hundred excuses. And I do not share these things because I, it's, uh, because I feel good doing it. I, I do not. But I can remember going to the airport after we'd had the funeral. And my wife, I'm, she's walking ahead of me. And you know, they give you roses off the casket. And she was so worried about those roses. She had them. She didn't want anything to touch them. She knew something she wanted. You know, you can save them and do something with the roses. And she just didn't need it. That's all she had. That's all she had. She wouldn't ever hold any grandchildren. She never hugged him again. All she had was flour. Her, my wife's birthday was three days before my son's death, and he sent her yellow carnations, which was her favorite flower. Months later, it probably was April, May, I went into my wife's office at her work. And those carnations were still there. They've been dead for wilted. I said, why do you still have those flowers? It's the last thing. The last thing I have. It'll be all right. It's just one time. you are here and you are struggling with addiction please understand and listen boy we, we hear Amy's story today and boy what a blessing it touched me when I first heard it and thank God and praise God for those that can give that testimony God is able he is a chain breaker and he can take it away and thank God and, and there are some 
that have miraculous stories like that, and then there are some people that pray and pray and pray and still struggle. I don't understand. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a drug counselor. I don't understand all that. I do know. I've heard, you know, through my ministry, people said, you know, when I got went to the altar, I had a I cussed like a sailor. But when I got saved, when I gave my life to Christ, I never had a desire to. Then I talked to other people and say, boy, I still slip every one. I really have to pray and watch it. It's it's a problem. I, the godliest man I know, Brother Vernon Barker, he. Uh, he was uh, in World War II, and he was a rough guy and drank, and was a hard drinker and partier, and he got saved, gloriously saved in the ministry, pastored for years, and he told me of one night when he had to go to a, a family's house that the, the, the man was drinking, he took the fifth of whiskey out to get it away from the guy, went home, put it in his garage, and laid down in his mouth, I'm talking about years later, his mouth started salivating, and he had to go pour it out. That's the godliest man I know. I don't understand all those things. I just know this. Failure is never final with the Father. And here's the thing. If you struggle and you don't want to disappoint people and people are looking to you, please don't try to do it on your own. Please talk to somebody. If there is somebody and nobody you're comfortable, please take my number today. Message me at any hour of the day or night because you do not, I promise you, as bad as it is now, you do not want your family to face what our family and so many others that are here, even in these services today, have went through. You're God's favorite. He loves you. He loves you right where you're at. He knows all about it. He is closest to you. If you're here and you are a family of an addict, I've already delivered this message, you're not a bad person. Listen, I, I describe it like somebody when somebody is in the military and they are deployed. For, for that family, that it's life is never the same till that person gets back home. It's exactly what it's like for a family of an addict. You struggle and you pray and you don't know if you're doing the right thing and you're trying to do the best thing. You're not bad people. You're a good mom. You're a good dad. Somebody told me that one night. They came to my house. They said, you're a good dad. I, I needed to hear that at that time. And somebody needs to hear that today. And, and you're a brother or sister and you care. But then you realize sometimes that love has to be tough and sometimes you realize you're enabling them and the, the, the help, it's the natural, most natural thing in the world for a mom or dad to take care of their children and then you realize that maybe your care is killing them and, and, and you're enabling them and, and those decisions and it's hard, it's hard. It stinks. The whole thing stinks. But I want you to know you're God's favorite. He is closest to you. He loves you. There are some that are here I want to talk to that have lost children. Maybe through drugs, maybe through other things. I've had people... You've lost ch children. I don't care at what age or before birth. You're God's favorite. He loves you. And sometimes we don't do a good job and we, don't, we just don't know. We don't know. And I'm telling you from somebody that knows. I know. It's a bond that they doesn't even have to be spoken. I know. You're God's favorite. He loves you. He's closest to the broken. Then to the potential, the potential addict. And by the way, that's everybody. Well, no, that can't happen. Listen, when I go around this country, the number one thing is not my son's story. The number one thing I hear is, well, I had a surgery. 
and I got a prescription. And I really liked that prescription so well, and then I got, and then when I couldn't get any more, and then I started stealing for it. Pastor's wives, three felonies. Pastor's wife, Hayesville, North Carolina, tears streaming down her face. Said, I'm clean for a year, but I can't even tell, I can't even give my testimony in our church because the ladies of the church, when this happened, came to me as a group and said, You are a disgrace to the church and you've ruined your husband's ministry. Why, that'll help you when you're down there. Nobody that's down needs to be kicked further in the ditch. They need somebody to love them and help them. They know what they are. By the way, we all have problems. Be careful. Don't listen to the lie. Yeah, it's all fun and games. And, and I go to schools and there's always a couple of those boys. They're laughing. That's a big joke. It's no big joke. It's not a joke. You may be, you, yeah, you may be able to do something and try and dabble and walk away, or you may be getting a tiger by the tail that's going to take you down. So don't start. I told you, the song, the sermon, all of that came before any of this happened. And it happened because I, and when I pastored in Ohio, we had a, a program called Weekday Religious Education where I taught the Bible with parental permission, signed the kids out of public school. I taught 250 middle school students every week the Bible in public school, walked them across to a building that we created. And, uh, boy, I had a boy in the last year before I took this job, a few years ago, I had a boy in my fifth grade class. His name is Caden Katanic. Caden has arthrogryposis, AMC. It is a muscular disease. It affects everybody differently. In fact, they told his parents, uh, the doctor said, you know, you need to abort this child. And they said, no, we're going to take whatever God gives us and, and love him. Caden is in a wheelchair. He has no control of anything, basically, but his feet. He runs his wheelchair with his feet. It's amazing what you can do. You know you can make paper airplanes with your toes? I mean, Caden can. I mean, he's, he's got a mind like a... He just he has no very little control of anything but his feet. And Caden, he began to, to, to be in my class, my religious ed classes. And we had a big old time in our, you know, I'm just a big kid. I never grew up. So we have candy that I give them if they do their verses. And, um, but there's things I began to notice when Caden started attending our religious ed class. That I, see, we did the hand motions, you know, with all of our verses. And we're doing, having a big old time doing these hand motions. And I'm looking over and there's Caden can't do the hand motion and then i throw the candy out at the kids did you know bribery works great at fifth grade i mean it just works great and so i threw the candy out come on get your candy and they'd be running over each other and there sits caden in his wheelchair candy he has to <clears throat> get somebody else to get his candy and one day it had snowed i tell this in the south i said sometimes in the north the snow Accumulate. You know, they don't know what I'm talking about in Florida, but you you know, you know what I'm talking about. It had come a snow, and uh, we are getting ready to walk the kids across, and, of course, Caden's in a wheelchair, and his walking coordinator, Carol Miller, I told you about, pray for her. She's, got, she's battling cancer. Great Christian woman. She said, uh, maybe we ought not. He might get stuck in the wheelchair. Maybe we could stay back. Well, Caden was already bundled up, ready to go to religious, and he looked so sad because my class was his favorite. He loved me, and I loved him. I said, oh, no. I said, if we're having religious ed, Caden is going. I don't care what we have to do. We're going to get him over there. So here he goes, running that thing with his feet, just slipping, sliding through the snow. And we get over to the wheelchair ramp of the religious ed building, and sure enough, he gets stuck. 
And Carol's saying, you know, really, we can go back. I said, no, no, kids, get around here. And so I got the kids there, and we're pushing and pulling, trying to get that thing. And he's, he's spinning the wheels, doing wheel, you know, snow back in my face. And I'm down there, and I'm falling on the ground, and I'm full of snow. And I'm put, I said, no, we are getting him into this building. And just as I'm putting my shoulder to that wheelchair, God spoke to me in that minute. And God said, do you know why out of 250 kids in your class, that Caden is your favorite? Do you know why you care more and your attention is drawn to him? It is because he is broken. And that's exactly the way I am with my children. It is because of his brokenness that you as a Christian are attracted to him just as I am attracted to the broken ones. And I'm telling you, I don't have all the answers, but I'm just here to tell you, for whatever reason you're broken, there is a God in heaven that loves you and cares about you and wants to help you. Even in the midst of our pain, I, I call them God sightings. The first one I had was that God gave me the strength to preach my son's funeral, to walk from my family on the front row in a packed out church in Creston, Ohio and pick up his Bible off of the top of his casket and go in that pulpit and preach it. Now you can go on. If you go on YouTube and search Matt McComas, you'll find it. It's been viewed thousands, tens of thousands of times and it's, it's, it's mandatory watching in some drug court and treatment centers. Um, I, I would encourage you, if you have somebody that's hurting or is in any of these categories that I've talked to, you, they, 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 you please... You need to see it. Now, you'll watch it, but I have never watched it. I can't even call it up on my computer. So you tell me, if you don't believe there is a God, explain to me how I did that. I don't even know. I don't even know most of what I said. God has given at the lowest moments across this country, I can tell you, God has used this story to help. I can take you. I have a note from a girl just last week. She said, I just want you to know I've been clean for three months now. I Heard your message in South Carolina. I'm taking a girl in North Carolina who said, I, I don't want to fail. Your son saved my life because I heard that story. She got out of jail. Six years in prison for methamphetamines. She got out, immediately relapsed, went to jail. Got out of jail on Tuesday morning in Raleigh, North Carolina. Came to church that night and walked the aisle. Been clean ever since. Got her long as she's been in her adult life. So even in the bad, there is a God who is faithful. And that God wants to help you. He knows all about you. He knows about your brokenness. And he cares. And I don't like to do this. I'll be honest with you, I dread these. I get start getting sick a week before. I, I, I'm, I'm very personal with my pain. It's a very personal thing. And I do not enjoy sharing it. But I do it because my son wanted to help others. It was his heart's desire. The last conversation we had was about, he was in groups every night. He was in church, a church meeting that night. He wanted to help other people. So I feel like we're doing this together. It brings purpose and meaning to this whole situation. A pastor was walking in the streets of Atlanta, Georgia. There's a place in Atlanta, Georgia called Underground Atlanta group of shops he said he was up a small alley and he looked and noticed a repair shop it's a, one of those repair shops where you can bring anything a vcr your shoes uh, you know uh, a curling iron whatever whatever you need repair but he said the pastor said 
said my, I, I literally stopped in my tracks when I saw the sign that hung over the door of that repair shop. He said, I think we need a sign like it in every one of our churches across this country. Here's what it said. Nothing broken beyond repair. Nothing broken beyond repair. This morning after the first service, I stood in that fellowship hall. And frankly, it is overwhelming. The heartache that is represented in each pew. And I'm telling you, there is nothing. I can tell you. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how bad and how long. There is nothing broken beyond his repair. Just let him have his way and take him at his word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your precious and holy word. Thank you for each one.